I mean, you have to be thoughtful about it. You're not wasting your time just negotiating with a bank on something that really they don't care about. Is venture debt is debt. So make sure you've got good experience, advisors. Typically, venture capital financings are structured as equity. But recent years have seen the emergence of venture debt, sometimes used standalone and sometimes used alongside an equity financing. How does this work? What are the pros and cons? Joining me on this episode are expert attorneys Lisa Comdi and Alidad Vakili from Foley & Laudner, along with Pete Pettit, a managing director with Aon. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. So today's topic is venture debt. Typically, venture capital is structured as equity or something like a safe that converts to equity. But there are increasingly sources of debt capital available to early stage companies. And so how should founders today think about that and think about the pros and cons of it? So to talk about this, we've got uh, three experts with us, starting with Lisa. Morning, Lisa. Good morning. How are you? Good. Where are you joining us from? I am in Denver this afternoon. Denver, Colorado. All right. So give us the brief background around yourself. Sure. I am a partner at uh, Foley & Lardner. I've been practicing for 20 years. I have a great love for startup companies. I started my career out in Silicon Valley. And so I've been working with growth companies for my entire legal career. Um, I do a lot on the financing side and uh, a piggyback to a lot of venture financing that we'll talk about today is venture debt. So I, yeah. I have a lot of experience helping yeah. companies through that process. Awesome. Welcome. And also joining us is Pete. Where are you this morning, Pete? I'm dialed in from San Francisco, Brett. San Francisco, California. Know it well. <laughs> give, give us the brief background on, on you. I have been with Aon, uh, the world's second largest insurance broker, for about three years. My, my role within Aon is applying our IP capabilities into the capital markets and into the M&A market. And we've developed three solutions, um, of, of, of which one or two I'll, I'll talk about today. But the, the most interesting for this panel discussion are IP-backed uh, lending capability. My background is mostly in investment banking and corporate development, and I've been here in the Bay Area uh, primarily as an investment banker for the the, the preponderance of my uh, roughly two decades of pre-Aon experience. Nice. Welcome. Also, uh, Alidon. Morning. Morning, morning, everyone. Um, I am dialed in from San Francisco. I'm an attorney with Foley Larger and uh, practice primarily with corporate rich, dealing with startups and really growth businesses, a lot of VC financing, helping founders on Garage to Global. So all these corporate uh, for a lot of startups in here. Garage to Global, I like it. So guys, you know, traditional venture capital has pretty much always been structured as equity. So, uh, you know, I give you 5 million bucks and I now own 10% of your company, 20% of your company, whatever the number may be. Um, and there is no repayment obligation, but I, as an owner of 20% of your company, that means that I have a claim to 20% of the proceeds when the company is sold or has an IPO. It also means I have a claim to 20% of all future profits of the company. And debt, you know, everybody knows what debt is, but traditionally debt really has not been available to early stage for a variety of reasons, at least of which they usually don't have assets to secure it with. But I think the first I started hearing about venture debt was um, coming out of Silicon Valley Bank and that they started doing venture debt deals typically as a complement to an equity financing round. So a company raises some venture capital structured as equity. They may also want some debt to fund some aspect of operations. And Silicon Valley Bank would do that deal uh, as 
typical debt, meaning principal plus interest, but then they also get some warrants on the deal so that they have a piece of potentially uh, a piece of equity in the future as well. But now all of a sudden I'm hearing more and more about uh, venture debt being done. And I think part of this in the last year or so has been driven by the fact that valuations on the VC and the VC world have been hammered pretty significantly. And sometimes companies are looking at doing venture debt as an alternative to a, to a down round. I think that's one of the reasons why kind of hearing more and more about it. But I'm curious kind of your guys' perspective on this in terms of what you're seeing out there. Is that, have I described this accurately? Lisa, you have thoughts, thoughts on this? Yeah, I think predominantly, Brad, I'm still seeing venture debt piggyback up up of a round of fundraising. Mm -hmm. Really the reason that that the banks want to do this is twofold. One, bring a customer in and hopefully grow that relationship. And two, they do it after a round because they know they've got a a really great venture capital firm supporting the company. So it it really de-risks it from an underwriting perspective. They know that, okay, this particular venture capital firm, you know, is likely going to bridge them through a down round instead of leaving the entire investment. So I think that is still a very critical piece of it. I say that I'm seeing a lot more people do a smaller round size than they might otherwise do around a Series B. Hmm. Uh, instead of raising $20 million, all right, let's raise 10 and do a growth, you know, capital line of, of nine, 10 million bucks. And, and obviously you're only giving up a very tiny piece of equity in a, in a form of a warrant for that. Um, so I've seen people, you know, kind of do that in, in this part, in this type of market, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And all does that map to what you're seeing as well? It, it does. Yeah. That great description, Lisa. Yeah. That's exactly what I've been seeing too. I'm certainly seeing more and more of it. Um, you know, I, I saw a couple of deals last year and it was exactly the same thing. They raised the round, they raised the C round, one company in particular. And um, very quickly after that, they did a, a dead venture round with one of their principal investors. Um, so it actually worked out really nicely. They, they had someone that was already an investor, lead a company, felt very comfortable and they were the lender on that. One, one thing to add to it, Brett, that I have seen a little bit recently, I wouldn't call them down rounds, I'd call them flat insider rounds. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. I've seen people do the venture debt docs and have a condition to closing that existing investors, you know, put in another four or five million bucks in order to make sure that there's a real runway um, for the company and to make sure that, you know, that there is, you know, that they're, that they're not making a bad kind of underwriting decision on it. Right. And as you said before, Lisa, all of this stuff is really just about risk. And, you know, as a as a debt lender. You know, if Sequoia is in for 20 million bucks, then that makes it seem a whole lot less risky to a, you know, to a debt capital source. Um, and, and then also in the example you just gave, if I understood it correctly, that, um, a debt source might say, we'll do this debt facility if the existing investors will also come in with some additional equity capital. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. So Pete, you know, I mentioned before that one of the reasons why early stage companies typically haven't been able to access debt markets is they don't have much in the way of assets to, uh, to collateralize uh, a debt facility. But you have done a lot of work in this area in terms of looking at the times when perhaps a company has IP that is valuable enough that it can be used to back a debt financing. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. I, I think, you know, Aon looks at IP in two ways. Number one, it's the world's largest uninsured asset class. And, and that prompted us to, you know, make a, make a big investment in our ability to analyze and value IP assets. Number two, it's probably the world's most 
undervalued asset class, or it's very, it's been very challenging for companies that have good IP to realize value from that IP. And so we set out on a mission to apply our IP analytical capabilities towards trying to harden IP as a source of collateral, recognizing yep. that there are all kinds of companies, particularly out here in the Valley, um, who have you know, made huge investments in intellectual property assets that might range from patents, a, a, a really obvious source in, in probably uh, the, the least intangible amongst intangibles. But we right. look at patents, we look at trade secrets and know-how and brand trademark and data and software and copyright, sort of up and down the IP stack to, to, to recognize value. And, and we've developed a solution that can actually wrap an insurance policy around an IP portfolio to serve as collateral for an asset-based loan for a for a company that otherwise would not have access to traditional debt markets. And so we consider we consider our solution um, really a, an, an alternative to and or a supplement to equity financing. And, and it obviously has the benefit of being substantially less dilutive. So it really works when you've got a company that's made those big IP investments, that's got commercial milestones, that are recognizable and and sort of out there in a reasonable forecast period, we can help companies bridge themselves towards the fulfillment and achievement of those commercial milestones using that vehicle. Right. Now, entrepreneurs all tend to be optimists. So entrepreneurs, you know, like, I've got six granted patents. These things are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So Pete, how do you go about placing a value on a company's IP portfolio? Yeah. Uh, carefully and thoughtfully, <laughs> yeah. but the real answer is, um, we triangulate on, on valuation. We will look at a bunch of different methodologies, which might range from obvious methodologies, like replacement value. What would it take to recreate this portfolio? Like we'll look at market comparables where the patent brokerage market does have comparable transactions that we could use as a proxy for, you know, what a portfolio might look like in a liquidation scenario. We also employ the, the income method, which actually takes a look at the enterprise and runs a discounted cash flow analysis. And then we apportion the net present value amongst major asset classes. Oftentimes we'll find that the IP portfolio, again, from patents through data and software and everything I mentioned in between is often the most valuable asset with it within the company. And so we'll, we'll sort of inform our views on value from each of those three angles as, as well as, you know, to our own exercise of good old fashioned judgment. Right. And that's a real interesting niche, Pete, because a lot of venture debt lenders exclude the IP out of <laughs> the collateral package entirely. Interesting. Have a covenant that says you can't place a lien on the IP, but they won't go and even dig into that as part of the collateral. So that's an interesting product. I think. Yeah. And why, why is that, Lisa? I, I don't know. I don't know why that is. Um, I've never really thought about it, but I will always try to mark that out of a term sheet if a banker yeah. tries to stick it in. I think they have a hard time maybe even managing it, making filing yeah. with the PTO office. And they just say, that's just not part of our underwriting. We're just we're just not going to go try to properly secure that and figure out what that beast is. And it changes so much over the course of a loan. That's my, I don't know. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it'd be a squishy thing. I mean, it's part of the reason I asked Pete you know, how the hell do you put a value on it? Because, you know, IP is a very squishy thing. <laughs> it is. And, and it requires, you know, analytical tools and methods and experience that exists in very few places. And, and, and so, 
you know, we, we've built a very multidisciplinary team that includes data scientists, you know, analysts that tend to be like re- recovering lawyers. Um, we've got some former heads of IP that have done a lot of licensing work. We've got some former patent prosecution people. We've got former bankers and consultants, um, like, like, like me. And, you know, it, it takes a really multidisciplinary approach to arrive at an informed view of, of value. Yeah. Yeah. So Lisa and Oledon, I, I assume you guys have represented both companies and lenders, sources of capital. You know, if a, if a company founder came to you and said, I'm thinking about doing a, um, a debt financing for my company, what would you advise them in terms of things to think about, things to look for? Um, how would you walk a, a company founder or a company executive through that? Sure. Elida, do you want to go first? Or? Yeah, sure. I can offer some thoughts. Um, so I, I think it, it needs a good detailed discussion about the company. What stage are the ads? You know, they need to have some revenue. And obviously, they have to service the debt. So it right. can't be too early stage because they're right. going to have to be able to service that debt. They also have to have enough some sort of collateral that they can finalize. But of course, now with the new product that uh, he was telling us about, maybe the idea is something that could be used as collateral. So interesting. So a bunch of Ikea desks isn't usually interesting as collateral? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. <laughs> For the, the real value there. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's in, a lot of founders, and ones that have done a bunch of deals, they're experienced, they kind of get it. Other founders that may not have gone through that, they just need to, need to be informed about what, what events that lender is really looking for. Mm-hmm. And it is very much like a, a is debt. So they're going to be looking for some of the same thing that a traditional uh, lender would look for, but there's obviously nuances and differences right through that, that, that you know, setting. So I think those are, the, those are a couple of things. I'd add in, you know, again, this is relationship banking. So mm-hmm. you're leaning very heavily on the board members to make the introductions. I always offer introductions to the others just so you can almost double check term sheets and make sure that you're, you know, have something to negotiate against. These are relationships. So the, the members of your board should be facilitating and helping you with those conversations. Um, I think a couple of things I would think about is, you know, is this money that's available to draw immediately? Is it a term loan? Meaning can I pull mm-hmm. it and I just have to agree to pay it back later? Is this a revolver? Meaning I can pull mm-hmm. it down over time. And if it's a revolver, what types of things and conditions do I need to make? Is it a borrowing based loan based on you know, your, you know, SaaS revenues and the ARR, like, I don't know, you know, so those are, and then I say that the other thing that's really critical and is very different from term sheet to term sheet is financial covenants. Sometimes there's Zippo um, and sometimes there's really, you know, a lot going on there. And so it's, you know, it's pulling in the CFO um, to make sure that you can live with this facility going forward, um, I think are really critical things. So I would suggest off the bat meeting with four or five potential contenders, and then really see who understands this space you're particularly in. Bankers are great. They know a lot of people that they can make introductions. They're going to do it too in order to keep your business. So find somebody who knows your space, knows your board members, so that if you get into a rough patch, you've got, you know, somebody else who's kind of advocating for you who can talk about how great your company is, even though maybe you can't, you know, a, you know, a little bit of a, a speed bump in terms of wealth or, or hitting your covenants. Right. And for our audience, covenants mean kind of um, things that you agree, for example, you agree to keep certain financial ratios within a range as long as this this loan exists. And if you go outside of those ratios, then you are out of covenants, which means technically they could call the loan, Lisa, is that right? Yeah, they could call the loan. And obviously at that point, the collateral package is in place if you can't pay back the loan. 
Right. They, they don't do great business by calling that and being like automatic, let me take my money back. So they right. really are, are trying to work with you through that. Um, but I think it's understanding what the covenants are ahead of three. Yeah. You know, I see people, for example, get into a lot of trouble, really great companies. Maybe it's more of an annoyance what the covenants are. Wait a second. I actually have to go back to <laughs> my banker to approve a, a million dollar, you know, bolt on acquisition. That's right. crazy. Yep. You know, yep. so. I think it's like having conversations as you're either amending the facilities or starting the facilities of like, what actually is the growth plan for this company? Are you going to have international operations? Like, well, then guess what? I'm not going to keep all my funds in your bank all the time because you don't have an office in the country that I'm going to. Right. So I think it's like really being honest with what the growth path of this company is going to be and what and how you're going to get there so that the facility works. Because it doesn't make sense for anybody to be constantly going back to the bank and asking you know, for relief on things that are just, you know, it's meant to protect them, right? It's meant to protect right. the bank. That's what it's right. for. Right. Some, you have to be thoughtful about it. You're not wasting your time just negotiating with a bank on something that really they don't care about because it's positive for the Right, company. right. So the safety tip, safety tip there is to, first of all, uh, really understand all the covenants that are, mm -hmm. that are being requested mm -hmm. and, you know, be careful about, you know, which ones align fine with the trajectory you expect for the company over the next few years and which ones don't align and then discuss them then. And then even after, even after the deal is signed and the facility is in place, you know, keep your banker up to date on what's going on. And if there's something you're going to be going out of covenant on, better to have a discussion with the banker in advance about that than for it to become a sticking point. One thing I was going to add, Brett, um, just yeah. following on his comments is, yeah. you know, the best time to negotiate a venture debt deal is very soon after you've already raised the round, because then you, you, you know, hopefully have good, you've got a good source of revenue or not revenue, but uh, funds, you're not desperate. Right. Um, I think I've seen sometimes companies will let, wait a little too long and then they're, they're desperate. The runway is starting to shorten up and then they're maybe not be in the best position to leverage their budget. Right. So Pete, I, it is funny. So when I teach, you know, when I teach at Stanford and I talk about, uh, you know, financing a startup and debt versus equity and stuff. It's funny how most of the students are like, oh, debt, you know, debt is evil. My parents told me, stay away from debt. Debt is evil. And then I try to explain to them, well, first of all, your parents aren't wrong. Debt, <laughs> that is good advice. But the reality is that, you know, on a pure cost of capital basis, that, you know, that typically debt is a cheaper source of capital than equity. It's just that for early stage companies, they really can't tap the debt markets. Right. Yeah, I, I think we tend to see... You know, I, if, you're, if you're talking about sort of seed capital, friends and family around pre-revenue financing. That's that's not likely to be debt. Yeah. That's that's unlikely to be debt. That's unlikely right. to be our, our, our debt solution. And, right. And right. I think what, what we've kind of figured out how to do is get into a, a, a company as a debt investor or as a facilitator of debt investment at a point in time when the company normally would not have access to traditional debt markets because they have neither EBITDA nor hard assets to 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 back a, a, a loan. You know, if the company has used its equity financing and, you know, o over the course of growing the business to a certain point to really develop a robust IP portfolio where we can come in, it's 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 oftentimes alongside an equity capital raise or in yeah. the place of an equity capital raise, the debt capital you know, our, the, the total cost of capital for our loans tends to be in the tw 10 to 20% loan, which is high relative to traditional debt markets. But when you, when you compare that to the cost of equity, 
yeah it, you know, it, it 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 can really fall in line as a as an attractive solution so we right. we the typical point of entry for us it is for a company that has raised and deployed some equity capital has revenue has customers typically will not be EBITDA positive but envisions you know Getting being there. EBITDA positive within the within the period of the loan our our loans tend to be 4 years and the size of our loans tends tends to start around 15 one, five million dollars okay. and and extend well well past the 100 million dollar mark our, our largest deal to date has been 150 million so it is you know if, if we we would typically come in a little bit later at a, at a little bit more mature mm-hmm. of a stage mm-hmm. relative to where i think the venture debt conversation may start to be a viable one and are you typically coming in at the same time as extra equity capital we we certainly can you know but not we, but doesn't have to be that way does not have to be that way you know and something lisa said earlier um really resonates you know as as debt investors our lending partners and indeed our our internal fund we we love to see supportive equity shareholders who are going to do everything they can to step in to make sure that company remains compliant with covenants yeah that's that's you know uh, certainly a part of the overall picture but i i think um the, the the way we look at you know the credit profile of the company obviously has a lot to do with with their ip and the views of the insurance markets about the value and insurability of that IP. David asks the question about uh, concentration of customers. In a perfect world, lenders want to see that you've got a lot of revenue and it's coming from a whole bunch of different customers so that you're not at risk of, you know, losing one or two big customers and suddenly you're hosed. Uh, Pete, do you have any thoughts on on this? I think the devil is always in the detail. In the detail. And I think yeah. any sophisticated investor, whether on the equity side or on the debt side, is going to really seek to understand the context of, uh, like, who are your 10 customers? Are there 10 more with whom you're in active discussion? What What's the nature of your contracts? Um, how much visibility do you really have? I, I think those are probably the first line of questions that that, that I would envision. That makes uh, makes intuitive sense. So, uh, Lisa, Lisa and Alidad, um, in terms of venture debt deals that you're seeing today, are they typically uh, interest plus warrants? Are warrants still still almost always a part of it? Almost yeah. always a part of it. Um, usually there's a piece that vests at closing. Okay. And then if there's a, a revolving facility, for example, then the rest will vest if they give the money, right? If so if you never actually, you know, ask them to loan you money, then, you know, maybe you're giving a really, really tiny percentage. Ah, I see. So if, So if it's a, if it's a revolving facility, then there's a few warrants for just simply issuing the facility. And then if you actually draw on it and use the capital, then they get some more warrants. That's, yeah, that's right. exactly right. And you'll give them okay. to them all up front and they'll just vest, you know, so that way you just do the paperwork up front. But I'm seeing a lot of that. And, and I will say, like, since I've been doing venture debt over the last 10 years, the warrant coverage has gone just so far down percentage-wise than what it was years oh. ago. Like now I would think the average is, you know, 10 basis of points, some 0.10% yeah. of the company to maybe 0.25% of the company um, in value. Most of the time I still push to have that coverage be in common stock rather than in preferred stock right. warrants. Um, right. you'll, right. you'll fight over that a little bit. So if it's unclear in your term sheet, fight it out in the term sheet phase rather than you know, waiting until you get the draft from the warrant. Um, right. So. Right. So if it's unclear, then just have your attorney insert common. You got it. 
That's a great point because if you if they want preferred, it, it creates an additional regular complications because if they're I mean, if they're going to get it at the same price as the preferred was sold previously, that's one thing. But I've seen deals where the venture debt lender wants the more preferred stock, but they wanted it at a penny a share. Exactly. And the yeah. preferred stock sold at $20 a share. So now you've got to create a whole separate shadow series of preferred to be able to accommodate that different price. Yeah. And, and, and I don't even think that's what they have in mind. Not, like in my experience, when people are throwing that in the term sheet, they just get the windfall of liquidation preference at that price and they want that same class. They're paying a penny for it and they're yeah, like, you exactly. know, here you, here you go. And then you'll have to waive anti-dilution protection and that'll all be part of the process. But I'm right. not seeing people create a shadow class that gives them like, you know, a few cents of liquidation preference they want at whatever that last class is. So that's why I just throw them in common yeah. stock and say, this is a kicker. You're paying a penny. You get right. common stock and, right. and there you have it. And Lisa, why, why do you think warrant coverage has gone down over 10 years? I think there's a lot mm. more competitors. I see. Yeah. I do. I, yeah. just think, I just think that there's enough people now doing it that you don't, um, you, you've just got multiple choices and you have room to negotiate. Right, right. So in the early days of venture debt, people would just accept whatever, <laughs> whatever you asked for. And today they're comparing term sheets from two or three different sources. And yeah, that, that makes sense. Ali Don, what other thoughts do you have about about this and kind of what you would what advice you would give uh, company founders? Well, I think you know it's it's like anything else. It's it's the relationship based. So and, and it, it may not seem intuitive. You know, oftentimes we think of debt as okay, I'm going to go to a bank and go to a loan bank. I don't have a relationship, but it's a bank. And I'll get a loan. It'll be fine. But this is not like that type of loan. You really want a strategic long term partner. So you know, ideally, if there is an existing investor that buys venture debt, that could be a great win because they're already invested in the company. Um, alternatively, if it's a bank that does a lot of venture debt, like Silicon Valley, there's others or other players in the field, you just want to know that they're they're there in the long, long term. They're going to be a strategic uh, partner for you and um, they're going to approach it like you want them to approach it to make sure that they're there. So, you know, hopefully you get to your exits and, um, and, and they're right along with you. So there are, so venture debt is something that today is obtainable from both banks and non-bank lenders. Right. Silicon Valley Bank obviously is a example of a bank. Pete and Aon is an example of a non-bank lender. What are the other sources for for venture debt today? I have seen, um, and again, you, you hopefully your board members can help with this if you're in a specific industry. Um, you know, there's a lot of growth companies like in the CPG space. You know, those are those are financed a little bit differently. It's still venture debt, but it's it's inventory based, you know, mm -hmm. and it you know, and it's accounts receivable based. So I've seen I've definitely have seen more untraditional types of loans, um, but they're pockets. Like they're you you've really got to get an introduction. It's hard to Google that and try to find that <laughs> right. well, who those players are. I think if you're a typical tech company, SaaS company business, you're you know, the best alternative is likely one of the, you know. The peaks of the world, or of, or a, or a, a traditional venture bank. Mm -hmm. If you've got sort of a you know hardware component to your um, technology, it's CPG, or there's or there's there's something else that's that you're able to collateralize, or maybe you do in in terms of that you know big concentration of customers, you can finance that particular receivable under a contract. Uh, then then I think it's worth exploring that. You know your attorneys, your um, board members should have some sorts of leads on connections to those particular types of lenders, but 
Okay. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a little harder to get to them, I would say, because it's so specific. So uh, Charlie's got some good nuts and bolts questions. Charlie asks, uh, are these typical fixed or floating rate? Um, are they secured by equity in the operating company or in the holding company? Um, and he asked about dividends. Or sorry, he asked about covenants, which we talked a little bit about. You guys want to take a shot at any of Charlie's questions here? Sure. I would say floating rate for sure is what mm-hmm. I'm is what I'm typically seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not typically secured by any equity. Um, I haven't done a ton with hold coast structures, so I suppose in that structure, maybe they would ask for a pledge um of, you know, the subsidiary assets. But if, if they're maybe. Um, I haven't seen a ton of the complicated structures. Normally growth companies are sort of trying to keep things simple. Um, so I would maybe. Maybe if you've got a, a complicated whole co-structure, they would want to pledge um, by the parent entity. Um, covenants restricting debt. Yes, absolutely. There will always be a covenant restricting debt. There'll be certain carve-outs to that that you'll um, negotiate. So there'll be things called permitted debt. You know, anything, you know, that they'll allow usually some kind of subordinated loan concept. So fine, you can give another loan Here's the dollar size you can do it on, but it has to be subordinated to us. It has to be below us so that we're we're that we're first in line on, on, on in the in case of a of a downturn. Um, there'll be things where you can buy equipment and furniture and you know things that you like finance, computers, your printers. There'll always be carve outs for that type of thing. If you have one of those complicated whole co structures, depending on how it's secured, they may let you loan back and forth between particular entities in your structure. Um, investments, yeah, there'll be a permitted investment concept. One ninety nine point nine percent of the time, they want all the money the bank that they're at. So you're going to put all the money in a, in a deposit account at the bank that's giving you the loan. Maybe they'll they'll allow you to do investments in very safe treasury securities, but most companies aren't doing that. They just that you're just you're just throwing your money in, inside the bank and then you're and you're spending it over time. Um, dividends, yes. You know, most growth companies are not paying dividends to begin with. So I think they would be very weary of any money that they're lending you just going out the door to really to pay the founders and the investors. So I would say there's yeah. a blanket restriction. Yeah. Then so I can't so I can't so I can't just take the money, put it in the company, and then pay it out to myself as a dividend. No, ah, no they're not, they're that's not a safe dividend. that's a good safety tip. Yeah. To this stuff, Charlie, there's sure. always particular things that, you know, and that's why it's super important for your lawyer to talk to the CEO or the CEO to say, okay, what, what, what would be really problematic if you had to live with this covenant as is and how can we restructure it to meet the needs of your business? So there's always, you know, they'll throw the, the general things at you, but there's always nuances that, that make sense for your particular company and the bankers just may not understand it. And you are going to have to have a conversation explaining, <laughs> explaining it. I think that's a great point, um, especially with regards to dividends and other things. I mean, I think a, an experienced venture debt lender will get it. I mean, oftentimes they'll have a, a financing and then there'll be some sort of secondary transaction where some of the founders sell their stock to the company. So I've been involved in a deal where that's been the case and, and the lender gets it. They understand that that's not uncommon. And so there's provisions for that built in. Well, I have seen the whole co structure. Um, and I, I think, as Lisa said, it's very uh, case specific. So you know, where you have maybe particularly large assets that are being housed or owned by subsidiaries, then the, you know, that venture debt lender may be fine collateralizing against the subs, but not necessarily the parent company. So I think, Lisa, and all you know, is I, 
as I understand it, debt, debt is always senior to equity in the liquidation step. Is that correct? Correct. So a debt, so a debt holder kind of has an advantage in that they're at the top of the liquidation stack. Uh, they'll get their money in the case of a wind down of the company or the sale of the company. They get their money before equity investors get theirs. That's right. And, and then the really, when you're talking about that, Brett, it's like, you know, here in venture debt, they want to be secured. So they want to be above any other lenders, which is also things like, yeah. you know, I, I need to pay my, con- you know, I need to pay my legal fees or I need to pay my, you know, I've got, you know, I've got just a general unsecured debt to one of my suppliers or, you know, so, those, so they want to be like top, top. Of senior, line. senior to all of that. Yeah. All right. Great. So um, I think we will wind up. This has been a really great discussion about a topic that, that can be a little difficult and confusing. So the three of you have done a great job um, talking about this and explaining it. Any, any final thoughts on the topic, Lisa, Pete, all that? I would invite any, um, any of the folks uh, interested to uh, give us a call. And particularly to the extent you've got meaningful intellectual property assets that you think are, you know, a, a, a big part of your value. And I've got a lot of different solutions to help you, you know, capitalize, build and, and uh, build and realize value from your business. And I think you guys even have some sort of advisory service, right? Yeah, we, we do. It's an advisory solution that helps companies uh, position their IP with maximum impact in, in the M&A market and in the capital market. So, so we help a lot of companies that are going into, you know, the, the equity markets to, to, to raise capital via private place. And can people track you down on LinkedIn, Pete? People can track me down. There's only one Pete Pettit on LinkedIn. All right. There you go. Red, I was just going to say really quickly, I think we'll definitely see continuing increase in venture debt. Just one quick stat I was looking at from Crunchbase. Um, so in July of this year, U.S. startups raised about $1.4 billion in venture debt. Last year, same July 2021, they raised $824 million. So pretty significant. Uh, a significant increase year over year. We'll see a continuing increase. And you know, the one thing that we all touched on is, is venture debt is debt. So make sure you've got good experience advisors that understand the corporate piece, but also understand the financing piece. That can sometimes be all different than your obvious here too. Excellent advice. Ollie Dot, Lisa, Pete, thank you so much for your time this morning. This has been a great discussion. And to our audience, thank you for joining us. And uh, you can find all four of us on LinkedIn. So please uh, track us down with any questions or follow-up thoughts you may have. Thanks, everybody. Appreciate it. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, I'd really appreciate it if you could spare a moment to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your support truly makes a difference. You can find out more at fourthly.com. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.